Hello, everyone, and welcome to another entertaining edition of The Analysts. I'm Joni Balter, KCTS 9 political analyst, here with C.R. Douglas. He's political analyst for Q13. Hey there, C.R. Hello. We analysts have much to talk about today. The Russians and Washington Senator Patty Murray's response to their potential influence on our election. The Trump people in this Washington talk about allowing guns in sports stadiums. What could possibly go wrong? Governor Jay Inslee has a pricey new education plan, you probably heard. And longtime Seattle City Council member Tim Burgess is not going to seek re-election. So CR, off the top, looks like a large group of Republican and Democratic senators, including our very own Patty Murray, are worried the Russians interfered with our election. That would be quite the taint on the outcome if it is true. And this is a real hullabaloo so close to Christmas and the inauguration of a very unusual president. You have Senator Murray, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Chuck Schumer, and many other members of the U.S. Senate and House eager to restore faith in our government, you know, faith in the election system. And they are calling for bipartisan hearings and a comprehensive investigation to determine if the Russians did, in fact, hijack our election by leaking information from the Democratic National Committee computers. What are you thinking of all of this, CR? Well, I think it's pretty clear there's going to be a congressional investigation, maybe several congressional investigations of different committees. Um, most everyone seems to think that, that the Russians did hack, as you say, in, into the emails and then leaked them, uh, all of which were really damaging to Clinton. So the hawks want this because they're upset at, at, at Russia, you know, for their aggression, all the other things. And Democrats, who are still smarting over the election, um, they want this investigation. So both sides, for different reasons, perhaps, want it. So there are going to be committees that look into it. For Democrats, there's definitely some payback going on here. Oh, yeah. I mean, Donald Trump, oh, yeah. who was certainly the leader of the birther movement, really, uh, you know, attempt to delegitimize Barack Obama with his, uh, as, as president. You know, now Dems have a chance to, in a little ways, delegitimize Donald Trump if it can be shown that the Russians hacked and, you know, maybe influenced the election. I think it's going to be, and the hope is it will be a bar bipartisan uh, investigation, somewhat similar to the 9-11 Commission, which, which was done with, with, with help from both sides and, and the outcome was, was, was very endorsed and agreed upon. Well, you know, there's no secret that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump are sort of bromancing. It's kind of, it's kind of amazing if you think about it. But seriously, it would be fairly treasonous for the U.S. Senate not to look into this now that all this has come out. Even uh, Barack Obama has asked for a report. We do need to know, don't you think, and, uh, what actually happened? Did the Russians, did they really do this? Did they really interfere with our election? We know for a fact that they hacked into emails of Democrats and Republicans. And so the suspicious thing is, why only release the emails of the Democrats? That's that's not very yeah, subtle, I is mean, it? it? It looks pretty clear that whoever did it was trying to influence the outcome by making Clinton look bad. Um, and you know, and a drip, if, drip, drip to it as well, right? If you believe right? the intelligence uh, community, it, it was the Russians. This isn't going to change the outcome of the election. But listen, I do think, and it and it sure seems that that people on both sides of the aisle want to get to the bottom of this. I mean, if it did happen. 
then you got to figure out a way to prevent it from happening in the future. Future elections are are in jeopardy if if this kind of stuff um, can happen. So I think there's going to be agreement on this investigation. They will get to the bottom of it in some way. But let's move to disagreement because uh, there are things that, that you both love sides, the disagreement, well, don't you? <laughs> you gotta love it. Um, there are there are Trump cabinet nominees, of course. That's kind of what's happening now in the transition. They're getting a lot of energy. Um, and as you say, we are expecting our senators, Murray, Cantwell, and others, to to lead some of these fights. What do you make of what's what's happening early in this? Well, there's a lot of there's a lot of material here. I do expect Patty Murray, you know, number three in leadership. But uh, also the ranking member of the HELP Committee, and you know that's health, education, labor, and pensions, to be very involved in a couple of these, maybe all of them, but a couple of these especially. Uh, some of them are concerning, and they do, be, they do come before the HELP Committee. You know, she's going to have a lot to say about U.S. Rep. Tom Price, uh, who has been nominated to lead uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. This is a big deal. This is this guy is an avowed enemy of Obamacare. Uh, Patty Murray, in my estimation, will not go gently into that good night. I think you're right. I actually think Tom Price, for the reasons you stated, is going to be one of the hardest nominees for Trump um, to get through. He's he's a proxy for the repeal of Obamacare, and and Democrats just are not going to give him a pass in that. I mean, that is the singular domestic achievement of Barack Obama in their minds, um, and they're going to fight for that as much as possible, I think more than probably any other nominee he's named. Um, Democrats can't take down every one of these folks. I mean, there's political Absolutely capital not. here. Absolutely not. You can't you you gotta fight them choose. all. you got to pick and choose. you got to be selective. But I think Price, because of Obamacare, is going to be a real target, and Patty Murray is in a real position to help lead that in the committee uh, she sits on. You know, I had a thought also about Maria Cantwell. You know, she's ranking on energy. And, you know, this this thing came up where uh, the Trump administration asked some of the energy department folks to say if they had been climate change workers, had, you know, raise your hand, I guess, or answer this questionnaire if you actually had gone to climate change events. Not that that's hard to find. You just look in the uh, in the travel budget somewhere. But I, I can imagine Maria Cantwell pushing back on that. And she already had some things to say about that. Yeah. And that's a that's a big that's a big piece of her portfolio, if you will, kind of climate change and and. You know, she limiting. was one of the very first climate change senators. That yeah. should be pointed yeah. out very early on. I'm going back years on that. Uh, so, as you said, you know, look, very few of these nominees are actually rejected. And according to history, this may break uh, tradition and history. Uh, we should also talk for a moment about Patty Murray's role in uh, the nomination of Andy and help me here, Pudzer. I think that's right. Uh, That's close enough, I think, for Labor Secretary. You know, he is not a fan of the minimum wage. What's going on in Washington State? We just approved a statewide higher minimum wage, and the cities uh, like Seattle also have that. So this is a guy, you know, um, he's a fast food mogul, uh, Hardee's and Carl's Jr., which aren't that popular here, but, um, you know, very healthy choices, I guess. But she'll have a role in that as well. I think the best chance for the Democrats to not really confirm somebody 
uh, if you consider the number of Democrats in the Senate, 48, is to go after ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. People are pretty whipped up over this because of what we've been talking about. Russian connections, Russia, business in Russia. Well, I definitely think Tillerson is in for a fight. Um, but interestingly, I don't think the Democrats are going to need to take the lead on that. You know, uh, there are a number of people in the GOP, hawks in the GOP. I mean, McCain, Lindsey Graham, Marco Rubio, who are concerned about his ties to Russia. You know, Putin gave Rex Tillerson the equivalent of the Medal of Freedom a few years ago More in bromancing, Russia. endless uh, bromancing. So they hate his ties to Russia, um, and that may just doom him. I mean, Republicans, don't forget, they first have to get through a committee vote. Republicans only have a one-vote majority in, in basically all these committees, certainly on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So if you lose a McCain, I think Rubio's on that committee too, then you you've doomed his chances, even if even if Democrats don't really uh, don't really lead the fight. Um, they of course hate him, Democrats that is, for his connections with the fossil fuel industry. Um, I would say on this one, don't count Romney out. He was of course uh, being very very publicly courted for this job. He was passed over, but. My guess is Tillerson's got a 50-50 chance at best. You know, most presidents lose one or two of these nomination fights. You know, they have to go to their second choice, their third choice. I think it's very possible that Tillerson could lose and we're back to a Romney consideration. Well, there's two thoughts on that. Uh, Donald Trump said he liked the idea of Romney because he looked the part. Uh, sort of like The Apprentice. Like, you know, you're hired because you look like you you would be cast in that role or something like that. Uh, but then there was the the other analysis on this that there was some sense that Trump was just torturing Romney, just just toying with him after their big uh, battle in the primary yeah. scene, making him come back and and deny everything he said in the campaign. And in effect, he silenced Romney. Right? Romney has sort of come around to Trump, so he can no longer criticize Trump, even if he never well for the Secretary moment. You know, State. Trump isn't even inaugurated yet, so for let the me, moment. Let me just say one other thing. You know, I bet Democrats are kind of kicking themselves about the filibuster vote oh, they took yes. a couple years ago, which which they abandoned the filibuster, if you will, for these for these nominations. So that it now only takes fifty one votes, where it used to take sixty. So it'll be easier for Trump to to get these folks through um, than it would have been. And that's, that's, you know, frustrating for Democrats. D.C. is going to be like, you know, like one of those Alan First spy novels or something. <laughs> CR, we can't let it go. Uh, something big that happened this week. It's more like what didn't happen this week. U.S. Rep. Kathy McMorris-Rogers did not get the nomination for Interior Secretary under President-elect Donald Trump. She's from Spokane. She's high up in House leadership. What does it all mean? Why didn't she get it? Well, I was a little bit surprised he passed her over. All signs, all leaks was suggesting it would be her. So something seemed to happen at the last minute. Um, she was controversial with environmentalists. Um, but, but that but, would make her appealing, right? Yeah, I mean, she's she's pushed for more drilling, more mining on public lands. But his final choice, this guy from Montana, was, was of the same mind. It would have been nice for Washington to have had a cabinet secretary. Um, we've, we've, we've had them periodically over the years. In fact, the current... Secretary of the Interior, the Kathy McMorris Rogers would have succeeded, is Sally Jewell, who is a Washingtonian. So we've had someone um, in that spot uh, for a couple years. One thought I had, which is now moot, but if she had been picked, it would have been 
it would have been nice for Republicans here in Washington. One problem they've had because we're such a blue state is there's not really a bench, right? Most of the Democrats hold the second, third, fourth tier positions like lieutenant governor, like AG, like King County executive, all the positions that you look at for your next governor, for your next senator. I mean, the Democratic bench is strong, the Republican bench less so. Kathy McMorris Rogers would have a hard time running statewide from her base in Spokane. It's just hard for Eastern Washington uh, folks to, to make that leap to a statewide appeal. But this position would have given her prominence overnight. She would have had a huge platform. I think it would have put her in a good position to run for governor for Senate one day. Well, on that point, and this may be mildly inappropriate, uh, do you think that perhaps she was a little too church lady for Donald Trump? Uh, I, I'm not sure I should go there. Uh, <laughs> I'm not listen, sure I should have gone there. I, I don't think, um, I don't think her feminine qualities or non-feminine qualities have anything to do with it. I think what endeared her to him, at least for a while, was there was a real connection with Ivanka. You know, Ivanka and she seemed to bond over, you know, Kathy McMorris Rogers is the only person that has had three children while serving in Congress. So child care issues, all that kind of stuff, which seems to be important to Ivanka Trump, got got their attention. And that's probably what, what brought her into the Trump world. I don't think it's over for Kathy McMorris Rogers. I think I think you potentially could see something down the road for her. Well, you know, Paul Ryan was very sort of charming to her after she did not get the nomination. He talked about how important it is for her to, you know, to be so high in-house leadership. So, you know, she still has friends in high places, should we say. Yes. Okay, let's move now to a much, much more local story. Um, the relatively surprising announcement that Tim Burgess uh, on the Seattle City Council won't seek another term when his current term expires. That will have made him a 10-year council member. Not wholly unexpected, I guess. He had been sending some signals that, that he was kind of done with city council work, um, though he did have a re-election committee kind of up and running, registered with the city. Um it wasn't totally obvious, therefore, what he was going to do, but now we know. What do you make of it? Well, some signals. I think he was telling quite a lot of people that he was just thinking maybe there was something else to do uh, with his life and maybe not so excited about another fun election with, you know, the folks calling him the, the centrist or for Seattle, just too far right for Seattle, something like that. So I'd been he'd been telling a lot of people that you know he was he was thinking about this the problem is the council without a tim burgess is made up of some very green around the years rookies and i am not talking about their environmental credentials no i'm not some of them are just so brand new you know not quite ready for prime time you know tim was the sensible hard-working legislator not afraid to take a stand. You know, at the very beginning with that bill on homeless rights, the ability to sort of put uh, tents and encampments on parking strips and in the parks, one of the votes was just Tim standing up to everybody else. So he certainly had the, the sort of guts to stand up to the rest of the council. And, you know, and he had a big, big background. He was a, had earlier been a police officer. And so he really knew the police department when police issues rose up. He really knew the ethics laws. He had been on the Ethics and Election Commission for years. He also knew how to count to five, as in five votes. We call that city policy. <laughs> 
You know, he was the grown-up on the council. I know everybody says that, but it has to be said again. He was a centrist. Everyone except maybe the mega lefties uh, were really going to miss him. They're really going to miss him. Yeah, I mean, I think he, on the spectrum of Seattle Democrats, was was certainly more moderate, you know, was, uh, was a little bit more business-friendly, um, was a little bit more tough-loved to the homeless issue, was a little bit... Um, more willing to scrutinize big spending measures, but you know, let's be clear: this guy was a this guy was 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 liberal too. Oh, I mean, indeed! He, Didn't he, you see what he said about the Muslim registry? He said he said that if there is a Muslim registry, he he himself uh, will sign up. Oh, and he's really? He's certainly not Muslim, and he urged yeah. every other Seattleite. To do that as sort of yeah, a, I mean, a, a fair protest. Yeah, I That's mean, he, not a conservative person. He supported the $15 yeah. minimum wage. He was a champion of paid sick leave. Um, you know, he, he voted for those controversial new restrictions uh, and mandates on developers to build more affordable housing. The city had never done that. Um, so this was this was hardly a, a conservative, but, but, but a little more moderate to be sure. You know, after 10 years in the council... You've pretty much chaired every committee or vice chaired every committee. In Tim's case, he had also been council president. And so you've sort of, you've worked every issue, you've checked pretty much every box, and and you end up, after 10 years, starting to re-chair committees you had already done. So it gets repetitive. So I think that's part of the reason that, that he retired. But also, and you alluded to it a little bit, the council really changed over his 10 years there. I mean, Since it, district elections is what changed it. I think There's that was, so that was a big people. change. But the trends were getting younger. The trends were getting you know more progressive. The trends were getting more aggressive. And I think the election of Shama Sawant really changed things. Um, for Tim, you know, I interviewed him a ton over the years from from the very first and uh, I have as well. election. Yeah, yeah. And you could just tell the job was not as fun in later years as it was in earlier years. And I, and I think part of it was the the Shama Sawant style, which which obviously didn't necessarily agree with her in policy, but it was more her aggressive ways, fomenting he kind of a revolution at City Hall. I've seen City a couple Hall. of those tapes where he had to shut her down and just ask when he was council president and ask her, hey, could you, you know, just turn it down a tiny bit? Yeah, brought a lot of, you know, protest mentality um, to City Hall. And I just I just think for a, for a guy that was was prided himself on his thoughtfulness, his deliberation. It was just a, it was just, it was just not as fun. There was a lot of bickering between the two of them, as you say, um, at council meetings. Um, I, I, I think all those reasons taken together suggest that it was time to, to, to leave the council. So this is probably moving too fast, but just to address the opening uh, that, that him leaving creates. You know, the business community hasn't been winning much around here lately. They're in some kind of rosy economic stupor where they, you know, just sort of, I mean, they do try to run candidates from time to time. But I imagine with this opening, a citywide opening, he's one of the two at-large uh, council members. I imagine the business community will will try to get someone elected who understands their views here. Someone like, I'm thinking, and I'm not saying this is the person, but this is an example of a person. Someone like Pamela Banks, who ran against Shama Sawant last time. And I she came to Civic Cocktail, the last Civic Cocktail that I hosted, and I mentioned this to her, and she certainly didn't say no. She got one of those smiles like, why are you saying that? Or what are you saying? <laughs> well, it's it's going to be a cluster. Uh, mm -hmm. Open seats always are. Uh, we already know one official candidate, John Grant, 
who had run against Burgess last year. He's the former head of the tenants union. I mean, very much in the Shama Sawant um, sort of sort of ideological uh, camp. His run this year against Burgess was potentially going to be a little bit more competitive. I mean, he lost by 10 percentage points, but he was a good campaigner. And now that we have democracy vouchers, don't forget, there is now now publicly financed campaigns. That kind of program is tailor-made for a guy like John Grant, right, who's got kind of who's got kind of a lot of grassroots support, but folks that don't have a ton of money. So, true, true, true. so you get enough people to give you 10 bucks and then you have access to all these democracy vouchers. He could have a $250,000 campaign now that he couldn't um, before. I also, and I throw this out, wouldn't be surprised if Brady Walkinshaw oh, that's a thought. jumps that's into a this thought. race. He, of course, lost against Pramila Jayapal for that congressional seat. But he got a lot of kudos um, for his campaign, for the kind of person Just he is. Just not from the Jayapal folks. <laughs> not from the Jayapal <laughs> folks. But there are a lot of people that want that want Brady to be in a position of, of leadership. And I think there'll be some strong pressure for him to look at this race, too. Well, since he's run uh, in the congressional district, it does give him a chance to kind of appeal a little broader to the whole uh, Seattle City Council And district. he's fresh off campaigning. He knows he knows exactly what works and what wasn't. He's not rusty. Yeah. So let's move along to our own legislature. Wow. Donald Trump isn't even in the office yet, and some boldly Republican Trumpian ideas are bouncing around. Like, how about a bill to allow guns in sports stadiums? Why does this not sound like a genius idea? (laughs) Well, um, you know, the reason guns are restricted currently at CenturyLink and Safeco Fields is this concern about the combustible mix of a rowdy crowd and alcohol. Um, and the sports team to argue about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what could go a wrong play, there, as you say? A referee. It is, and it is the same reason that we do not allow guns into bars and places where they serve alcohol over 21. You can't even have a concealed weapon in those kind of situations for the same basic reason. Interestingly, the NFL actually bans firearms um, at games that. all across the league for basically the same reason. Fans and, and alcohol don't usually work well with guns. Um, there's actually been an increase in assaults in stadiums across the NFL in recent years. Not as much in Seattle. In fact, we're, we're pretty low on that, but that is a concern. So if this were to pass, it would, you know, and, and allowing guns in Washington were to be the law, it would, it would come into conflict with that NFL policy. I'm not sure how that would be worked out. But I actually think, stepping back, it's moot. I mean, I don't see this gaining much traction in Olympia. Um, there's a lot of support for the current for the current ban. You know, in the weeks before sessions, you always have these kind of pet bills that it's are the thrown, thrown into the hopper. It's kind of red meat or blue meat, if you will, for your constituents. Things that even the sponsors don't expect to see the I don't know what's wrong with me, but I don't like the idea of blue meat. <laughs> <laughs> but I will just add here that. It, it This doesn't really mesh very well with the voters of Washington State, if you think about it. And why would I say that? Because they passed background checks in 2014 by 60 percent. And then just uh, about a month ago, they passed extreme risk protection orders by a whopping 71 percent. So let's talk about the stadiums this bill addresses. Safeco Field, Century League Field. 
These are publicly and privately built, but mostly privately run. Look, I agree with you. The legislature isn't going to go for this. There's no way this is stagecraft of, of some sort. Uh, did you see, speaking of Olympia and all of that good fun down there, did you see Jay Inslee's huge spending and tax proposal for K-12 in education? What would you think of it? Well, the size is pretty daunting, $4.5 billion. In a lot of ways, it's deja vu over again. You know, he is, he, is, he, is, he is one more time proposing a capital gains tax. He's done that before. And a carbon tax. He's done that before. And closing tax loopholes. He's done that before. All in a way to kind of complete the, the McCleary uh, school funding mandate. Um, his tax measures have gone nowhere, and he's tried in the last three budget cycles basically to get these, these kinds of taxes passed, and the Republican-controlled Senate has pushed back on them. They're still in control, so I don't expect Inslee's chances to be any better um, you know, this time around than they were. So we're in for a real fight. I think, I think the GOP is going to continue to have a lot of discipline in, in holding the line, keeping their caucus together. Um, they may ultimately agree, the GOP, to kind of eliminating a tax break here or there. But the idea of a new tax, carbon, capital gains, what have you, I just think, uh, I just think is, is unlikely. I mean, the dynamic down there has been Democrats raise taxes to, fund, to, to fulfill McCleary, Republicans push back. And, and the way they meet in the middle is they close a couple loopholes and then they find money elsewhere in the budget. And I, I, I bet that's going to be the same dynamic. That has certainly been the pattern indeed. But how do you get to big uh, support of McCleary funding without doing what Jay Inslee just mentioned? I don't see how you get there. You know, I saw that uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Bill Bryant tweeted yesterday calling Inslee's education plan the December surprise. <laughs> Um, how is it the surprise? It is not a surprise. This was stated many times. You, you hosted some of the debates. Uh, it was stated many times that in December, the governor would have this uh, task force help him release a plan. Uh, so that to me was not a, it was the opposite of a surprise. And the fact that it's very expensive, also not a surprise because the problem is so big. And I got to say, the suggested taxes, not surprising. We have been talking for a few years about capital gains. It gets to a sort of crescendo that doesn't really pass. Uh, and also tax on services, which was part of this. Uh, that comes and goes as in vogue. Um, but to be fair to Bill Bryant, uh, if 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 we had known in the campaign that the the mayor was well, one month away, that might be why away, we didn't know in the campaign. Yeah, did you ever think of you know, that? that? That he was one month away from proposing four and a half billion dollars of, of of new taxes in effect to fulfill the McCleary decision. I mean, that would have been a pretty big deal. Yes, he's talked about these before, but we had no idea that that he was going this big in this way. During the campaign. I think that we did know that because we knew it was coming in December, something you wouldn't say in October before while people are holding on to their ballots. People heard that his plan <laughs> was coming, but they didn't. And they thought it was going to be cheap. Well, <laughs> I, I listen, I think there's going to be sticker shock to this, to this, to this. Uh, so he'll get proposal. half. That's how that. Well, that my guess works. is how this plays out is, is that, is that they will, 
the, the only difference this year than past budget cycles is that the McCleary deadline is 2018. So this is their last two-year budget before they actually hit up against that deadline. They could sort of kick the can. They had some milestones they needed to meet, but they could pretty much kick the can for the last couple years. And now it's it's sort of fish or cut bait, if you will. Now the rubber meets the road. I mean, I'm throwing out as many metaphors as possible. So they will probably you have almost to, hit all of them. <laughs> yeah, they will probably have to do something. But my guess is it will not be anywhere near the scope that the the governor's talking about. They'll do a little. They'll make progress, and they'll probably actually push most of it, half of it, whatever, to the next budget cycle and, and but it's a sh- jeopardize the wrath of the court. And perhaps because that's proven not to be that interesting. Proven not to be that big a problem. Yeah. If they can say they made meaningful progress this year, even if they didn't go all the way, I think that probably will satisfy most of the legislators and, and most of their political needs. And look, CR, a carbon tax. I had a funny feeling one of the most recent times we spoke that we had not seen the last of that idea. Not with this governor, as you know. You know, every governor wants to be the education governor. Jay Inslee wants to be the climate change governor so badly. Yeah, I I think the vote on the climate tax is, or the carbon tax, is is a killer, you know, because every time it it is now brought up, and you've already heard this since he mentioned this just a couple of days ago and, and re-announced this proposal, people look to the vote and say, hey, Inslee, what did you not understand about the last election when the voters of Washington turned down a carbon tax? So I think it's very hard for him to get much traction um, when voters just said pretty overwhelmingly no to this idea. Yeah, but on the overwhelmingly no, and we we did discuss this recently, it was well known that the environmentalists who were supposed to love a carbon tax didn't like this particular carbon tax. So instead of saying the voters said no and here's the percentage, it sort of also has, but they didn't like that particular plan. I think that's going to be a nuance that's going to be lost on most of the public. <laughs> I think I think the the talking point for Republicans down in Olympia during this budget cycle is, who are you kidding that the carbon tax is something Washington likes? And it's just it's just I would be phenomenally surprised if a carbon tax happened. Certainly a carbon tax that raised money, maybe a revenue neutral one. We'll have but, to talk about that again. Is what I think. Yeah. And today we had. Quite a lot of stuff. Who says things slow down during December? (laughs) He's C.R. Douglas. I'm Joni Balter, and we are The Analysts. For more stories on politics, please visit us on our website, kcts9.org. And thanks for listening. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.